0: Good morning. Happy Mother's Day. So good to be with you all. In a moment, I'm going to read Psalm chapter 24. So you can start uh, turning there in your Bibles or following along in the digital version of the bulletin. And we're actually continuing this morning a series that I've been preaching very periodically here at All Souls. I realize it's actually been uh, about seven months since the last time I preached in this series. Uh, but it's a series on the ascension of Jesus Christ, Uh, the historical event that really happened when our Lord bodily ascended from this earth into heaven to sit at God's right hand and to stay there ruling over all things until the day when he comes back to make all things new. And each Uh, iteration of this series. We're on the fourth sermon now, and I know you remember all of them just comprehensively this morning. Uh, What we've been doing is we've been uh, twisting the diamond, so to speak, uh, hoping to see different facets of the beauty of this aspect of the good news about Jesus uh, that doesn't just I think, interests our minds, or at least I hope, and and liven our hearts, but has incredible practical benefit for our lives as we live as people who are trying to follow after Jesus. So I'm going to read Psalm 24 in just a moment. Uh, A little bit of background on the psalm might be helpful. This was a psalm that was written by King David, who uh, is arguably the greatest king in Israel's history leading up to Jesus Christ. And it was written in reflection on an event in his life and in the history of Israel when he rescued the Ark of the Covenant from its bondage, so to speak, uh, when it was captured by the Philistines. The Ark of the Covenant was a holy box that represented God's special presence with his people on the earth. And the Philistines were, at least at that time, kind of the worst of the worst, uh, the chief enemies of God's people. So when King David was bringing the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem, it was symbolic, in a sense, of God himself returning to dwell in the city that he had chosen. And then later on in Israel's history, this would be one of those psalms that would be used by Israelite believers that they would sing and they would pray as they themselves journeyed to Jerusalem for one of the high feasts like the Passover. So they were, in a sense, following after God on this pilgrimage into Jerusalem. So I hope uh, you'll be able to keep that in mind as we turn now to God's word. Psalm chapter 24. A Psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Would you please pray with me? We come to you now, O King of glory asking that you would enable us to see something new about your greatness from your word. I pray that you would help us, Holy Spirit, to see our Lord Jesus with eyes of faith, ascended into heaven, ruling over all things. And as we come to your word, may you meet us according to our need. We know that there are people here this morning in all sorts of positions of the heart. Some of us are excited to hear from you. Others of us are discouraged and doubting. Uh, Some might even be exploring the claims of your word for the first time. Regardless, God, I pray that you would meet us now and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The Illinois uh, Half Marathon was here just this last weekend. I saw some pretty fun pictures of some of you who uh, stood outside the front entrance of the All Souls building to cheer on the runners with signs that some of you made and with uh, fun music and offering people refreshments along the race. Uh, I was sad I couldn't make it personally, but uh, it seemed like a really great time. And I think that was a, a beautiful ministry that our church was able to offer to the community. Uh, Because we recognize that running a half marathon is hard, right? Uh, We've seen this in previous weeks when we've looked at other aspects of what it means for we ourselves to be on a pilgrimage, that we are on a journey. So not just those runners in the Illinois half marathon need encouragement on their race. We too, as Christians, need refreshment, encouragement, strengthening, so that we could finish the race that Jesus has called us to run. And that's true in those moments of significant suffering in our lives, Uh, but it's also true in the mundane, Uh, that in the ordinary day in, day out, we need help from God's word to run this race. And again, I believe the ascension of Jesus offers us help that's very practical, and I hope you'll see that by the time we finish this morning. Well, as we look at Psalm 24 and consider particularly the good news that we need from this text of Scripture, I want us to see three things. First, in verses 1 through 2, belonging to the king. Second, in verses 3 through 6, approaching the king. And finally, in verses 7 through 10, we'll consider what it means to follow after our King Jesus. Verses 1 through 2 offer us our first vision of the king in the psalm, and we'll get several other visions by the time that we finish. And this first vision of the king is presenting God as the king over all of creation. David here is using poetic imagery uh, that would have caused the Israelite believer, who is familiar with his Old Testament, to think back on the earliest chapters in the Hebrew Bible, Genesis chapter 1 and 2. He's using poetic images that would have reminded Israel of God's creation of all things. And the logic of these verses is actually relatively simple, relatively easy to understand. The challenge then is actually in applying it to our lives. Because the logic of these verses is God created everything Therefore, God owns everything. Now, I might need to check with our resident lawyers about this, some of the thieves men. But I remember back to my business law uh, class in undergrad and my professor that dressed up in costumes. So I can tell you I, I learned a lot in that class. Uh, but one of the things that I do remember is about intellectual property law. Now, IP law can be incredibly complex that you have a team of lawyers dedicated to the topic, right? But the central principle is pretty easy to understand. If you make it, it belongs to you. If you are an artist and you create something beautiful, it belongs to you. If you're an engineer and you invent a new process or technology, it belongs to you. And what Psalm 24 is telling us is that everything in creation, everything in existence has God's trademark on it, so to speak. It's all copyrighted by him. It all belongs to him. Now, if you're here this morning and maybe you've been connected to the church for a while, you identify as a Christian that is probably not a controversial claim for you to hear. Uh, You're probably tracking with me. And yet, I think whether you are here this morning as a Christian or a skeptic or someone exploring the claims of the Bible, regardless, all of us struggle to live like this is true. If you took an honest look at your life, if you took a step back and slowed down, Uh, and, and really observe the way that you live day to day, I wonder if it would look as if the statement that you subscribe to, that you live your life based upon is God made me, so I belong to him. If you're anything like me, I think it's pretty likely that if you took an honest look at your life, it would look more like the statement that you believe is I belong to myself. And there are all sorts of ways that that lie is manifested. On the college campus, I think it's particularly easy to believe that lie. And that doesn't mean any of the rest of us are exempt from it. Because it's really easy to believe that your time belongs to you. You can go to bed when you want to go to bed and wake up when you want to wake up as long as you don't have an early morning class. Uh, when it's not exam week, at least, you can read what you want to read and watch what you want to watch and listen to what you want to listen to. We believe that our minds belong to ourselves. But none of us are are exempt from this temptation. And I want to take a moment to maybe prove that to you a little bit further. When we examine our culture, and by the way, by culture, I don't mean like the stuff that's out there, that doesn't affect us. I mean, the waters that we swim in, the air that we breathe, the things that are forming all of us, whether you identify as a Christian or not. When we examine our culture, I think there's almost nothing more annoying to us than someone who imposes upon our time. Uh, when I'm shopping in Meyer and I'm leaving, uh, there's always someone who very kindly very thoughtfully says to me, uh, thanks for coming to Meyer." as I'm leaving. And once or twice, I've kind of been, if I'm being honest, I would say trapped in a conversation with this person as I'm leaving. Now, why do I feel like I'm being trapped when this person is just being kind and saying goodbye to me as I leave the store? It's because I believe that my time belongs to me. And who is this attendant to impose upon my schedule? So there's nothing more annoying than our time being imposed upon, and that feels that way to us because we believe our time belongs to us. But then again, in our broader culture, I think there's almost nothing more offensive than someone imposing upon your body in some way. And that can be manifested in the area of sexuality, No one can tell you who you are, who you ought to sleep with, or it can be manifested in the area of diet and exercise. We believe, all of us, in one way or another, that we belong to ourselves. And the reason that that lie is so compelling to us is because we think it will lead to happiness. We think that if we belong to ourselves, then we'll be able to live a fulfilled and meaningful life, but the opposite Is the case. It actually crushes us to belong to ourselves because it means that it really is on you to find the right spouse, to land the right job, to have the perfect family, to justify your existence, whatever that looks like for you in this season of life. But what if we don't belong to ourselves? What if we actually? belong to the God who made us and loves us. I think there's all sorts of implications that we could draw out from that truth. But for the sake of time, I just want to mention one. If you belong to God, that means your identity comes from him. I've heard it put this way, that who you are is whose you are. Your identity comes from the one that you belong to, And that means that you can rest. You can hop off of the hamster wheel of performance, whether you feel that most poignantly in your home or in your studies or even in your religious life. Every human being, from the womb to the tomb, belongs to God and has a definite value because they are his creature. And that is good news. But as we pivot to our our next section, we actually get another vision of a different kind of belonging that is offered to people. Not the general sense of belonging that belongs to every single one of God's creatures, but a special belonging. The belonging that is like the belonging of a child in a family. The first question of the Heidelberg Catechism which some of you might be familiar with, goes like this. What is my only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And it goes on from there. So how can we come to belong to God in this special way? Well, verses 3 through 6 give us an answer to that question of not just belonging to God in general, but being able to approach him as our good father. And that section of our psalm begins with a question of its own. It says, Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Now that hill in that verse, is referring to Mount Zion, which wasn't actually that impressive of a mountain in Israel, except that it was the place that God chose to be the place of his special dwelling on the earth before the coming of Jesus. So another way to ask that question that David poses in verse 3 is, who is worthy to approach God in his temple? And thankfully, we don't have to guess at an answer to that question because the next verse, verse 4, gives us David's answer, the the answer that we have from God as David was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Let's read that again together. Who is able to ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. That could sound like a kind of random list that David came up with, uh, but that's not the case. To have clean hands and a pure heart is to be externally and internally righteous and pure and pleasing to God. That the things that you do, that others can see, but also The thoughts and the secret desires of your heart, all of these things are pleasing to God. And the next set of requirements uh, is also not randomly selected. We're told that the one who's to approach the Lord ought not lift up his soul to what is false, which is another way of saying you can't worship anything other than God. And we're told that the person who's going to approach the Lord can't swear deceitfully, which is to speak in a way that would be harmful to your neighbor. So that the latter set of requirements here that David mentions actually corresponds in a striking way to what Jesus himself would teach when he was walking on the earth about what the two great commandments are, to love God and not to worship idols, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. So when we get this vision of the requirements that David offers, that God tells us this is what it takes to approach me in my temple, what we see is that the requirement is moral perfection, comprehensive holiness, being pleasing to God in every aspect of who you are and what you do. I want you to imagine a scenario in which you're sitting in a waiting room for your dream job. Uh, Some of you might think, Ethan, I already have my dream job and uh, that's great, but uh, follow along with me. Uh, Maybe you're sitting in the waiting room in downtown Chicago or Silicon Valley. I don't know what the situation might be for you. But you're waiting for this interview and you were up the night before pretty nervous, right? You're up late into the night preparing for the interview, studying up so that you would know how to answer the questions. And you've got your cup of coffee in your hand, so you're jittery, you're nervous, but you're growing in confidence. But then the other people getting interviewed for this job keep exiting the impressive office where the impressive executive sits, and each time they come out looking dejected and discouraged. So maybe your nerves build up a little bit more. Well, finally, your name is called, and you stand up, you hype yourself up, you get ready to go in, but you've forgotten the cup of coffee that was sitting in your lap, and it spills forward and gets its dark stain over your crisp, clean, white shirt. Now, if you can imagine yourself in this scenario at all, Uh, I want to ask you, what do you feel in that moment? You don't feel secure. You don't feel confident. You probably feel shame. You probably want to run away. Now, if that is how we would all, I think, feel in that hypothetical scenario, how should we feel in the situation that Psalm 24 shows us we are really in. We don't have a coffee stained shirt going before an impressive executive clothed in an Armani suit. We have sin stained souls going before the God of heaven and earth, who's clothed in righteousness and holiness. One of the things that we ought to see when we come to God's law, when we come to the requirements of his word, is that our situation is far worse than we thought. We have no hope of approaching this God on our own merits, but there is one who is worthy to ascend the hill of the Lord. There is one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false or swear deceitfully. The good news about Jesus is that he came to perfectly fulfill the requirements of God's law so that you, though you fell short time and again, you could not just belong to God as his creature, but approach him in his temple, have an intimate relationship with him. And if you're here this morning and you are exploring Christianity, you're not sure uh, where you're at in this whole Jesus thing, I want you to know that this is a real offer for you, that you can be freed from the guilt of your moral failures and you can call on God as your father. You can approach him in his temple. All you need to do is turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. Well, finally, we come to verses 7 through 10, our last section. And so far, we've seen a couple different visions of the king. We've seen God as the king over creation. Everything belongs to him because he made it. We've seen God as the king sitting in the temple, the one that we could never have a hope of approaching if it were not for our great king, Jesus Christ. And here in this last section, we actually get two more visions of the king. We get a vision of a king who is a warrior. A far greater warrior than David, the author of this psalm. David defeated the Philistines, right? And he brought the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem. That was a pretty significant accomplishment. But our Lord Jesus, the one who ascended into heaven, as we'll think about more in a moment... He defeated far greater enemies than the Philistines. He defeated the devil and death and our sin. He overcame the world. But we get another vision of the king in these latter verses, 7 through 10, because we also get this picture of God himself arriving at the gates of the temple Remember, this psalm was used by Israelites as a pilgrim psalm. It's almost, uh, if you read it with that lens, it's like you're marching on this pilgrimage, and finally you arrive at the temple in the last few verses, but instead of the believer arriving, now it's God. God, who is the king over creation, and the king in the temple is now pictured as a pilgrim king. And when he arrives at the temple, what are the gates to do. They're to open up because the rightful king has returned to sit on his throne. The amazing thing about Psalm 24 is that these words that were written a thousand years before Jesus ascended into heaven are a picture of that very moment. They're a picture beforehand of Jesus ascending, returning to the Father when the gates of heaven would be opened up to him. How do I know that? Well, it's in part because of that adjective that's used in verse 7, next to gates. They're called ancient gates. It could also be translated eternal gates. There's, there's an ascension, an ascending of the hill that is far greater than climbing the small Mount Zion. He's ascending the ancient gates and returning to the place where he belongs, to his rightful throne. Now that in and of itself is pretty amazing, that God in his word would give us this picture of Jesus' ascension so long before that happened. But I want to, as we close, kind of connect the dots with our hearts and lives a little bit. Jesus didn't just represent us on the earth when he perfectly fulfilled all of these requirements that each of us fails to fulfill day after day. He also ascended into heaven to represent us there. And from heaven, he's calling us to follow after him, to follow in the same path that he's gone from suffering to glory. Now, how can we hear that and actually be changed and actually be strengthened on our journey? Well, I think one thing we need to see is even though these verses are a beautiful picture of the victory of the king, when we read them with the rest of the Bible, we see that there was a great cost, that there was a great payment that had to come before Jesus could be our conqueror that we're going to sing about in a moment. The author Anne Lamott tells a story uh, she retells it, actually, about an a little eight-year-old boy whose little sister was diagnosed with leukemia. And as you might know, uh, one of the aspects of a potential treatment plan for someone with leukemia is a blood transfusion. And the doctors determined that this boy, this little boy, the older brother, this eight-year-old, uh, was a match for his sister, that he could give... His blood as a part of her treatment plan. So his parents came to him and respectfully asked if he would be willing to give some of his blood to his sister. And he said uh, that he would need to think about it. Uh, you can imagine how the parents might have felt when he responded that way, but they didn't want to pressure him. They knew it was a big deal. So when he said, uh, I need to think about it, I'll give you my answer tomorrow, they, they went along with the plan. Well, the next morning he wakes up and he tells his parents, "Uh, all right, I'll do it. I'll, I'll give my blood to my sister. And then later on the table when he's all hooked up and the transfusion is getting ready to take place, the little boy turns to the doctor and he says, will it start happening right away? And the doctor's kind of confused. So the little boy asks again a clarifying question will I start dying right away? The little boy was confused. He thought that he needed to give all of his blood for his sister to have life. Now, that's a beautiful picture of something that's even greater, that our Lord Jesus wasn't confused. He knew what it would cost for us to have victory in him, for him to become our conquering Lord. He knew that he would have to be conquered for us on the cross, that he would have to give not just some of his blood, but all of it. When we see that, doesn't that make you want to follow after this king? Doesn't that give you a greater vision of what it means To follow our King, that it's not just about learning his commands and learning the right things to believe, as important as both of those things are. We are invited by our crucified and risen Lord, who's ascended into heaven, to march the same path that he has marched before us. I think when we really get that vision, it can transform the way that we view our lives. When we're struggling with the mundane, whether that is uh, changing toddlers' bedsheets or preparing corporate spreadsheets, it gives us a vision for a life that ends certainly in glory where our Savior has gone, knowing the great cost that has been paid. And when we're struggling with intense suffering or chronic pain or an overwhelming addiction, we can have hope. Because we know that the end of our destination is sure for anyone who trusts in Jesus. He has conquered through his death and his life and his resurrection and his ascension. That is good news this morning that can strengthen us on our race. Would you please pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for this reminder from your word. That we all belong to you, that we can approach our Father in your name, and that we can follow on the path that you've called us on, whatever that looks like, knowing that you've already secured the victory for us. You are the Lord of armies. You are the King of glory. The victory is yours, and you share it with us, those of us who trust in you. You offer us a certain reward that one day we will receive from you from your nail-scarred hands. We love you, and we ask that you would bless our worship of you as we continue even now to sing your praises, and may that spill over into every facet of our lives this week. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.